Secure Enthusiasts Club podcast. This week we talked to the leading light of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club in Holland and we pay a tribute to Graham Robson. JECpodcast.com Hello and welcome to another Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Wayne Scott with you. I hope you're well on episode 58 as we head through August and only a week ago we were, well, a bit soggy, to be fair, at Silverstone Classic for the return of the Classic at Silverstone after it was, of course, cancelled last year and what a return it was, especially for Jaguar fans because not only was the E-Type 60th anniversary marked with some incredible displays and parades, but also the 30th anniversary of the Intercontinental Challenge, which was, of course, the race that toured the world pitching legendary racing drivers against each other in XJR 15s. And if all that wasn't enough, there was a special race dedicated to the E-Type with some real superstar drivers. Tiffany Dell was there, Martin Brundle, his son Alex Brundle. Uh, There were some amazing cars out on track and some really thrilling racing. It was especially wet on Sunday, and most of the cars spent most of their time sideways. Uh, It's well worth a look. You can follow the links from Friday Spotlight, our weekly e-newsletter, to watch all of the live streams from Silverstone on YouTube once again. And it's definitely worth doing that, because there was lots of brilliant action that you can watch forever on there. Also, two ITV shows going out on the TV. The first on Wednesday, the 11th of August, 2021, at 8pm, and the second, the day after, Thursday the 12th at 8pm. That's on ITV in the UK. And one of the great benefits of being a member of the Jag Enthusiast Club is that, uh, well, we have the best seats in the house when it comes to watching Silverstone Classic. We can park your car overlooking the track on Cops Banking. We have all the marquees up. You can come and watch the racing in the comfort of our marquees and with all of your friends, or even you can watch the racing from the comfort of your own front seat in your Jaguar. It is the best place to watch Silverstone Classic. You can easily book in with us by keeping an eye on the magazine and on our social media and our weekly Friday Spotlight newsletters. In the autumn, we'll be putting out the booking codes. If you book with that code, it gets you the infield pass for your Jaguar. Well worth doing, some fantastic motorsport and a great spectacle for Jaguar fans last weekend. Full details and a write-up will all appear in the magazine and online at jc.org.uk. Also this week, we must pay tribute because many in the world of motoring and motorsport have lost a good friend with the death of Graham Robson on the 6th of August 2021. He enjoyed a busy professional life that continued right up until his passing, And Graham Robson wrote over 169 books, many of them on Jaguar, and some published in several other languages as well, countless newspaper and magazine features, and it made him the most prolific motoring author in history. Quantity never affected quality with Graham. His books, mainly covering historic vehicles and rallying, were meticulously researched and well-written. On many subjects, his books are now the standard works. And because of his wide motoring knowledge, Graham was regularly called upon to be MC or commentator at national club events. And I had the great privilege of working with him for many, many years. He was born in Skipton in Yorkshire on the 18th of January 1936. His birthday was the day before mine in January, something we always shared. Clifford was his dad. Kathleen was his mum and he was an only child. He was educated at a local school and then at Ermistead's Grammar School before going to Lincoln College, Oxford, where he read engineering. And it was at Oxford where the love for motorsport really began as he joined the Oxford Motor Club and became involved in rallying. His first job was a graduate trainee at Jaguar in 1957, during which time he was tasked with the design of the exhaust system for the E-Type. His subsequent career became almost perfect training for someone destined to become a leading author. He spoke about his time at Jaguar on this very podcast at the beginning of 2020. So let's hear what Graham had to say. This would be 1959-1960. Gosh, that's a long time ago. And uh, I was doing a lot of bits and pieces to to the bidding and calling of my seniors. One day, I remember in particular, uh, he came up to me on a Monday morning and said, are you busy? I said, well, um, hmm. you, know the, you know the E-Type's coming? I said, yes. 
And he said, well, he said, we've just realized that uh, we haven't designed the exhaust system for it yet. We've got to release an exhaust, you know what I mean by engineering release. We've got to release an exhaust system within seven days on the E-Type. Uh, it's your job. <laughs> I thought, thank you very much. And I thought, well, what's the snag? And he said, oh, by the way, he said in engineering terms, we've already released the tub, the, the chassis, so we can't alter anything under the, under the car to make space for the runs of the pipes. And um, we've already released the general height of the thing, so we only have so many inches between the tub and the ground. Uh, oh, you've got seven days, he said. And I said, well, what about the silencing system? He said, oh, he said... We've already sold the contract for that to, I think it was Burgess, uh, and, and so we know what silencers we're going to use, but we haven't thought where we're going to put them. So that was my job, and in seven days, I had to and did um, lay out the exhaust system for the first E-types, which included, as I'm sure every Jaguar enthusiast would know, a very complicated way of fiddling the pipes through the independent rear suspension. And of course, the only, only place I could put the silencers themselves without ruining the ground clearance was near the back, which is why you can always see the silencers on an early E-type. In 1961, he became a development engineer, then competition secretary at Standard Triumph, where he presided over the successful Works TR4 rally campaigns and the victory at Le Mans for the Triumph Spitfire. He worked at Autocar magazine from 1965 and the Roots Group, which of course became Chrysler in 1969, before becoming their chief engineer in product proving. He then had a spell as technical director at Kangol before becoming a full-time independent motoring writer and researcher and author in 1972. He was always very keen to stress the word independent because he always said it couldn't be stressed too highly that whatever his links with the manufacturer of a car he was writing about, his research was always thorough and he never pulled his punches where criticism was due. Once asked what was his most memorable motoring moment, he said, first sight of the Ford RS200, the day it was shown to a privileged few before its public launch. And it was typical of the esteem in which he was held by manufacturers, especially over at Ford, as well as enthusiasts, that he was invariably on that list to see and critique cars before anyone else. Many of Graham's books were about motorsport, perhaps not surprising because he got involved in the sport as a rally co-driver in the mid-1950s, co-driving in, amongst other cars, some beam rapiers with some of the big names in motorsport at the time. And he said his passion for writing was triggered by writing modest rally reports in those days for motoring news. And he became one of the leading UK co-drivers, competing in works teams and winning the Welsh International Rally with Roger Clark in 1965. He ran Standard Trump's motorsport programme from 1962 to 1965 and then got heavily involved in running many different rally championships for Ford Motorsport. He married Pamela in 1962 and they had two sons, Hamish, who's now a senior design engineer with Toyota Motorsport in Germany, involved in their LMP1 projects at Le Mans and the World Endurance Championship, and Jonathan, who's an experienced landscape gardener in Dorset. He moved to live in a picture postcard village in Dorset in 1981, thereafter travelling widely on business and for pleasure, but always enjoyed coming back to his cottage. Sadly, he lost his wife Pamela in 2014 after a long illness. Graham was recognised by the classic car community in 2018 when he was awarded the coveted Lifetime Achievement Award at the National Car Club Awards held at the NEC in Birmingham. I was very proud to be by his side when he was given that accolade. Graham Robson published more motoring books in the UK than any other author. His most successful and best-known books include a number of Jaguar titles, many of which have become the standard reading for books on those particular models. For me, the news marks the moment where I've lost a very dear friend and mentor in Graham Robson. Uh, he used to tell me off for referring to myself as his apprentice, and he always told me that I was his equal. But for me, it was always a great privilege, and I will always remain proud to have worked with and learned from the very best. We worked in many arenas and did many commentary gigs over the years, up and down the country, all sorts of different venues and events. But we were probably at our happiest doing the Triumph events. Of course, that was the mark for which he had a great passion. 
people used to wonder if we ever rehearsed our double act because we used to get on so well on the microphone and in front of the audience. And I can honestly say we never rehearsed it ever. We used to have five minutes in the bar beforehand with a cup of tea and a chat about what we wanted to talk about. And then we'd just walk out onto the field and enjoy ourselves. And that was how it became so natural. We genuinely enjoyed working with each other and that chemistry was just out of a mutual love and respect for each other. So when I turn on my microphone and venture out into the next arena that I would normally have done with Graham Robson, it might be without my knowledgeable mate by my side, but I know he'll be looking down on me, supportively correcting any mistakes, as he always did, and of course congratulating my successes, just as he always has done. He always used to say to me when we'd finished a show, was that all right? Was that okay? Was that good enough? And I always used to reply, good show, dear chap. Good show. Graham Robson, who died aged 85 this week. Motorsport Heroes with Richard West's Hall of Fame. Well, on this week's Hall of Fame, we're talking about one of the biggest characters of motorsport who ever lived. Certainly one of the biggest personalities. So big, in fact, he was known as Big Jerry. It is Jerry Marshall, and he was one of the enigmatic but uh, powerful characters of motorsport, wasn't he, Richard? Oh, remarkable, remarkable man, and somebody who you never, ever forgot where you were, you know, when you met him. I, I walked into the Kent again at the weekend at... Um, uh, the Brands Hatch event and I've just been down to where sadly as you know we had a marshal lost on the Saturday but I walked into the Kentigan suite and there on the wall is this amazing picture of Jerry standing there beaming all over his face with a pint glass held up you know with the shell signage in the background a remarkable individual and as some have referred to him probably one of the most successful racing drivers in the history of motorsport Absolutely. He became uh, as well known after his passing as he did um, during his life, really, because, of course, at Goodwood Revival, he's honoured every year with the Jerry Marshall Trophy, which is one of the most exciting races of the weekend, which is good because mm -hmm. it reflects him as a driver. He was exciting to watch, so much so that he was actually criticised in his career for being too flamboyant at times, wasn't he? Well, he liked to play to the crowd, you know, in the days of Baby Bertha and Big Bertha and countless other cars he's driven in, in, in that amazing career that he had. He would he was he would admit quite freely that at times some of the sideways style that he did display he would display was there to actually please the crowds and on occasions when he was under pressure, which wasn't very often, but when he was he would tidy his style up and then of course you'd see him driving more on the racing line but hugely flamboyant and an amazing guy to watch his car control is absolutely legendary where did it all start for him then because um he if you look back at some of the 60s autosport magazines he was certainly writing for them a lot well i think very early on he started writing you're, you're right he started writing race reports and in fact when he started competing himself it wasn't uncommon when you read this report with with glowing terms about how brilliant and what a tactical race and how exciting he was to watch it was actually written by jerry himself and he was a very smart guy you know there was the various sides to jerry there was that entertaining flamboyant drinking partying type of guy that you would see at the circuit with the likes of tony lang frankie and others with some of the legendary sessions that they had but underneath it all there was this guy who started out racing in a mini i think his first race was in 1963 and of course, um, his last race, and his, I think it was his 625th race, was one where he actually died at the wheel of a, of a Camaro, I believe. And those early days were, were very special because he was right there. He, he sat alongside some of the greatest people there that you can possibly imagine over his career driving in teams. But those early days were, were very, um, what's the word I should use, really? Sort of very humble. You know, that start in a mini was where so many people started out their careers but Jerry of course progressed and drove virtually every other racing car there was to drive in the world. I think he was one of those rare drivers that 
always kept one foot in the club racing scene as well as being a professional driver as well and of course he actually made most of his money through running a car dealership during the day uh, he never really mm. made the full transition to being a fully paid driver yet became a legend despite that and there's two cars mm. i associate with jerry marshall the first the Vauxhall Forenza, and second, TVRs, because he did all sorts of stuff in TVRs during the 60s, didn't he? Yeah, he did. I mean, that from those very early mini days and that journalism to which you referred to, he he then literally started this meteoric career and he started getting to the 1300 classes. He drove a new tunes 1275 GT and then he moved his way up through. He also went to work for the Barnet Motor Company where he was the sales manager and that's interesting. He became a director, as you say, of TVR. Um, he, he really, really had his feet in everything. He loved, he loved the club scene with a passion because he was amongst friends and admirers. You know, clearly Jerry played to the crowd. He would also command the room like very few people I've ever seen. But he did have a great deal to do with TVR. And I think, you know, being involved with them throughout their early years and making sure that in actual fact, he worked alongside and rescued, you know, his and who was he actually with? I think it was Martin Lilly, wasn't he? Who at that time was in charge of TVR engineering. And um, it was really with, with Lilly's inputs and also Jerry's involvement that it pretty much saved TVR from bankruptcy. Absolutely, and it's always a bit of a running joke that TVRs are always so tail happy because Jerry Marshall was probably the test driver who said, <laughs> make them slide more. <laughs> you know? um, he had all sorts of different uh, race wins and successes with TVR as well, but he did also drive Jaguars, uh, never drove for the Jaguar factory as far as I'm aware, uh, but did drive in Lister Jaguars in a number of different races and in a number of different series, didn't he? Mm, he did. I mean, I, there was a very famous incident when he, well, an incident result when he drove at Crystal Palace back in 1972. Um, it was a race by organised by the Aston Martin Owners Club, and the final race in that was a historic sports car race, which Jerry won in a Lister Jaguar uh, and did a fantastic job doing it. So, of course, and also he raced very successfully in Mark II Jaguars as well. Um, and all of those cars, there are some remarkable pictures on the internet, you know, those cars in various angles of attack with Big Jerry behind the wheel beaming all over his face. And of course, he had a very, very tight race with one Tom Walkinshaw, who was driving a Mazda the very early days of his career. And uh, it ended, well, in pretty much disaster, really, for Jerry Marshall. Um, him and Tom Walkinshaw, they were great rivals on track. But uh, one day, the argy-bargy and the door-handle to door-handle stuff well, Jerry came off a cropper with, didn't he, really? Yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the two of them had a, had a brief tangle, but Jerry, you know, had this amazing uh, accident where the car barrel rolled at over 100 miles an hour. And I have to say, he was lucky to survive the accident because he actually lost his helmet during that accident. Although the strap was still done up, the helmet actually came off and the seat mounts broke as well, which meant that he was being thrown around inside the car as it went on. Um, clearly he was knocked unconscious I think he had head wounds needing in excess of 100 stitches he fractured his skull he damaged his jaw and his teeth he did his back and his spine and, and in fact that injury to his back uh, and the spinal column went on to plague him with great discomfort in his later life up until, up until his death um, as, you know there's a part I was reading on the internet earlier doing a bit of research on Jerry and, it, and as bad as the accident was the doctors actually told him um, that it was almost fortunate that his helmet became dislodged because the extra weight of the helmet would have probably snapped his neck. So, yeah, not many not many people come back from things like that. And just 10 days later, he was back behind the wheel of a Golomite and uh, in his lister at the August Bank Holiday Race at Brands Hatch. So a, a man of many talents and also obviously a very solid constitution as well. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it was the Triumph Dolomite and the relationship with British Leyland that would in the end start to see the end of Jerry Marshall's professional career. He, like so many drivers, had many disagreements with British Leyland at the time and the money and the way they were being being run, basically, by mm. uh, by mm. John Davenport, someone who I know a lot of drivers had a very difficult relationship with and, of course, British Leyland then pulling all motorsport uh, in the early 1980s. But uh, as I mentioned, Goodwood Revival, one of his probably most epic races, was actually after his professional career had ended, and he went to Goodwood Revival, I think the second ever Goodwood Revival that they ran, and had a fantastic race there. Um, driving an Aston Martin, I think. Um, 
Mm. And, and was seen driving um, Jaguar saloons as well for a number of years afterwards, which of course gave rise to the Jerry Marshall Trophy that we all know, love and enjoy every year at Goodwood now. Yeah, absolutely. Was it 99 or 2000 in the rain um, that he did the Goodwood Revival St Mary's Trophy race? And I think he, in that race he beat the legendary John Rhodes, but that was the drive that netted Joe, uh, netted Joe the coveted Driver of the Day award as well. Um, he scored his 600th win at Sneston, driving an Aston Martin DB4. And also, of course, he came back and drove the old Vauxhall Forenza, one of the original 1974 cars with those very noticeable droop sloot uh, fronts with the four oblong headlights in, one of which was actually at the CTCRC meeting at Brandsatch last weekend. Uh, he, he had his reunion with Baby Bertha at the Goodwood Festival of Speed and continued to do demonstration runs. And uh, when you look at the list of cars, everything from Corvettes through to Mustangs, Lotus Cortini, Cortinas, Austin Healey 100s, Austin Healey 3000s, Jaguar E-types, the list just goes on and on and on, as do those 620-plus race victories that he had during his amazing career and let, let's not forget jerry died at a relatively young age of 63 doing the thing he loved most from a heart attack yeah absolutely well his eldest daughter was named tina and she gave her name to the tvr tina and if you want to watch more about jerry marshall and get to understand what his character was like there's loads of great footage of him in interviews on YouTube. One particular one I must recommend is the documentary on his Vauxhall Forenza uh, that was made by the Vauxhall Press Office uh, late 70s, early 80s I think it is, but uh, fantastic character of motorsport and certainly one to be celebrated here on the JC Podcast Hall of Fame. Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. To find out what events you can get along to or to discover local club meets in your region, visit jec.org.uk. Well, on this week's Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, and for my next guest, we're heading across the North Sea to Holland, no less, and to a lady who is working very hard to make sure that the Jaguar Enthusiast Club and all of the Jaguar enthusiasts in that part of the world have a club that's vibrant and busy. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Mariska. Hi, Mariska. Thank you very much, Wayne. Thank you for having me. What is your official title now in Holland? Are you chief leader, chairman type person or what do we address as now? <laughs> well, something like that. President, is it now? President Mariska? No, it's just Mariska, please. <laughs> <laughs> Although I like the sound of it. <laughs> well, you, you have oh. got more involved, haven't you, in your, your local region. So talk us through it. How's it all come about and, and where was it and where are you going with it now? Well, when I joined... I joined the, the, the GEC many uh, years ago, about six years ago. I read in our magazine there is this uh, GEC Dutch region, but it wasn't uh, active. It was very inactive, to be honest. And I um, met some of the, G of the Dutch GEC members um, in the UK during the summer festivals, etc. And everybody said the same thing. Well, we have this Dutch region, but it's it's inactive. So many moons later, I was just uh, I I, uh, I contacted uh, Jerry de Vrieze, who uh, who was my predecessor, and he um, well he said he tried to to activate the the GEC members in Holland, but he couldn't really get a hold on it. So I just uh, asked him, well, can we do things together? But well, ultimately he decided to uh, to quit. So I took uh, things over uh, spring this year. So not very long ago. And uh, well, in the meantime, I contacted uh, the Dutch GEC members. We have 35 members at the moment. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's rather um, small, but on the other hand, I can have uh, personal contact and everybody is very excited to uh, to relaunch the Dutch region again. That's fantastic. And it's a reminder, really, that here we talk about the Jack Enthusiast Club from my position here in the UK. We have had people on from other countries, especially from the States, a part of the Jaguar family. But, of course, the Jaguar Enthusiast Club reaches across 
every continent, every country of the world. So it's great to hear from the point of view of someone who has revived a region in another part of Europe. And I guess it's been tough because like every country in a global pandemic, you haven't been able to do anything, have you? And starting something from fresh when you're not allowed out the front door adds a more challenge than is normal. Yes, exactly. Yes. So I was just asking the other members, well, well, what do you expect? What can we do? What should we do? But everybody was was already excited. They got an email and I started to connect people to each other. And I had this this plan to, to use the summertime to go to all the provinces in Holland and to visit all the members myself. But well, um, at this moment we are uh, moving our office. So it's, it's, it's a bit of a stressful time, but well, what we can't do now, we will do in the future. And on the other hand, I uh, already got in contact with the GEC German region. Madeleine Hillebrand uh, is, is the chair of, uh, of that region. Madeleine is, is very active and we are trying to um, organize a, uh, a joint um, event next year with uh, between our countries, the Netherlands and Germany, and we might pull Belgium into it as well. But well, we, we are discussing it and we are making plans. So that's very nice to do. In certain respects, because everyone's embraced Zoom and social media to such an extent during lockdowns and during the pandemic, I guess that in a way could have made it easier because rather than having to find a venue and a date that suits everyone, it's very easy to jump on Zoom and at least have a conversation and start to connect with people. Exactly. However, the Dutch uh, GEC members all uh, unanimously said they, they didn't want to have a Zoom meeting, but they want to meet each other in person. So, but we are getting there. But, well, we have uh, some older uh, members, and I guess that, that, that that's the thing with all the car clubs. The older members uh, still are trying to, to um, embrace Zoom, etc., and they find it easier to meet in person. But, but we, will, we will get there. And of course, what you have done very brilliantly is embrace social media as a way of building that community for those outside of your immediate reach. And you've launched the uh, JEC uh, Holland Facebook page and you've got Instagram going on and there's content being generated. And I think that's indicative of how different it is now starting a regional, starting a car club up, isn't it? You've got to get all of these things in place. That's for sure. Yes, yes, absolutely. Just to to get everyone connected and not uh, solely for the for the people in in Holland, but also for the other regions to uh, to to be a part of the Dutch region as well. Because we meet each other during, um, uh, for instance, the, the the summer festivals in in uh, in the United Kingdom, and now we can also meet each other on uh, on the socials. Well, I'm going to say what all of my listeners are thinking. It's really lovely to be talking to a nice lady on the podcast instead of some old bloke. That's what we normally get. That's me as well. I'm one of them old blokes, and uh, uh, it's you know not only that, but you're so enthusiastic about making the club happen and making events happen and and building that community so where did it all start for you where did this car passion come from oh oh that was a long time ago my my father and i i have an older brother he's six years older than me and my father and my brother were always doing things with with mechanics and and cars etc and then my my brother got his driver's license and my father bought him uh, his first car but uh, we had to do some restoration stuff and actually my brother wasn't that interested in his first car but i was so i spent many saturday and sunday afternoons in a garage working on my brother's car so and it was so great when it was finally ready and my brother could use it after he got his license of course <laughs> so and i think it started then and you're not just so a jaguar fan either i i know you in, in particular we share a passion and a love of triumphs as well so it's interesting that it's all british cars you seem to be the most passionate about yes that's true but we also have two german cars i, I wasn't going to gonna mention them but since you brought them up <laughs> But they are also, we, we, we only have cars for fun. So we have the Porsche 928 and, and we have the, the, the BMW Z3, but they, they are, 
well, they are also fun to drive. But yes, indeed, there is a, a preference for British cars, which are the Jaguars and, and one Triumph. You're mad. That's what most people will be thinking at this point. You're mad. Yes, we, we're <laughs> mad. Yes, yes. We. It's just the two of us, me and my husband. So we have eight cars. So it's it's ridiculous, of course. <laughs> Well, I suppose that's part of the challenge as well in, in, in so many relationships, isn't it? That uh, you need a understanding partner and um, uh, having an understanding partner when you're in this hobby is all important. And sounds like you've got that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes, we are. And we, we absolutely love doing uh, the, the, the trips to all the car events and we love to go to the United Kingdom and we, we actually want to visit Ireland and Scotland, etc. So we are, are are not done at all. Now we, we, we all our cars um, are driven and they are all uh, roadworthy. So we can we can take any car we want and make a nice trip. Talk us through the fleet then. I know because I've met it in person, you have a beautiful Series 1 XJ6. Uh, tell us a little bit about that car. And then, yeah, walk us through the, the Mariska garage and introduce us to all of your cars. Oh, okay. Well, the XJ6, the Jaguar XJ6 Series 1 was my, my first uh, classic vehicle I, I bought. She's called Penelope. And she uh, had a uh, full body restoration last year. And she's, uh, she's, it, it's so, such a nice, elegant looking car and she, she drives so, so, so smoothly. So I'm, yeah, she's, she's my sweet spot, to be honest. And then we have um, a Jaguar XJ40. Uh, well, all our cars have names because otherwise we don't know uh, about which car we are talking. Mm -hmm. But the XJ40 is called the Baron. He's, he's one of our, uh, he's, he's the only project car we have. And we, as soon as we moved office and have our workshop ready, then we'll, uh, we'll start the restorations uh, of the Baron. And this year in February, we bought an XJ12. We didn't have a V12 in our collection. So this is the first one, but he's, he's all good. And he will be going, he will be going to, uh, to the restoration, uh, uh, for some some body work, he has some. Well, I don't think many people are surprised, but he has some some rust spots, rusty spots. Well, and then I have my my daily driver, my XK8 Coupe from 1997. Nice. And and Ronald's daily car is an S Type R. Well, and then we have the Triumph Vitesse from 1965, the Porsche and the BMW. See, I'm amazed by this, and uh, you know, Jaguar fans, bear with me here because uh, regular listeners to this podcast will know I'm a Triumph man as well. But you know, I look at that lineup of cars; it's very obviously premium British limousines, Jaguars, of course, Porsches. I get it. And then you've got this little Triumph Vitesse. Why? How did that come into this mix? <laughs> <laughs> oh, the Vitesse, Bobby is his name. He is, it is such a fun car. And we bought Bobby uh, solely to, to drive uh, classic rallies. Right. Because it's, it's absolutely a very fun rally, rally car. And that's the thing, isn't it? Having these particular cars, you know... People often say to me, you know, why why do you need so many? You can only drive one at a time. But it's the different sort of lifestyles and different activities that each one opens up depending on their model and their type and the type of club you join with them. And that's what it's all Absolutely. about. It's the lifestyle, isn't it? Yes, I agree fully with you because, well, we have Bobby for the rallies. Well, my XK8 is, is my daily driver, but we have the BMW Z3, the convertible, uh, the Porsche Coupe for, uh, uh, for, for track days and for, uh, well, when uh, Ronald wants to go fast for uh, uh, drive uh, to Germany for, for his work, etc. Have you ever sat down at the dinner table, you and Ronald, and just sort of looked at each other across the meal and, and said, or asked yourself, uh, is it time we got a normal car? Or does that thought never occur to you? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's funny you say that because we had normal cars. Uh, both our daily uh, cars were Skodas and they are very reliable cars to drive and then well we had that meal and then we looked at each other indeed and then we said why are we still driving um 
uh, normal cars as daily cars. It, it's about time we, we, we are driving the cars we always wanted to have. Well, and I always wanted an XK8 Coupe, uh, not only for as a daily driver, but it happens to be my daily driver at, at, uh, at this time. And he always wanted to have an S-Type R. So, well, and then we, we start searching and, well, um, the negative side is that when we start searching for a particular car, we always find it. So, well, then we need to buy it. <laughs> we can't help ourselves. I guess the philosophy is, you know, if you're going to spend a lot of time driving for work, perhaps a lot of time sat in traffic, or whatever you might as well be having fun doing it absolutely and as long as we have the space for the cars to uh, to, to to keep them dry and, uh, and and nice and warm well then it's no problem and well well and obviously it, it's a hobby which which costs money and but if we run out of money then well then we might have to sell the cars but as long as we don't need to uh, as long as as we have no no problems at all we we will just enjoy them and look after them that's that's very important what's it like being a jaguar owner in holland what's the parts supply like is there people to fix it if it goes wrong is there a community out there that's strong do people look at you strange in the street what is the experience of owning one in the netherlands like day to day Oh well, that's that's a nice question. Um, well, people. Um, well, when something occurs in traffic uh, with a car involved, then uh, in in all the the articles it says, well, there was a car involved. Except when there's a Jaguar involved, and then they say, well, something occurred on the road. It was a Jaguar or a Porsche. But well, that's how they 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 look at, at Jaguars uh, here in Holland. But we have some, not much, but we have some some specialists um, who can do all sorts of uh, 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 restoration and and maintenance, etc. Well, and of course we have an S and G Barrett here in Holland. And uh, but there are not not too many businesses who actually specialises in Jaguar. So we when we need some some specific parts, we also know our uh, addresses in in the UK. Of course, just listening to you talking about these cars and your love for them and your your passion for the club, um, you've actually used that passion for some good because you like me work in lobbying to ensure that people in power listen to the fact that we deserve and need to use our transport heritage on the roads in the future and whilst the world has to move towards a carbon neutral future and we all have to be more green and more ecologically aware in our behaviors there's still a place amongst all of that need to change to keep historic vehicles on the road and 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 just like me you campaign over in holland for those same rights don't you yes i do yes Yes, and we need to, because in Holland, I think we have similar discussions as in the UK, as in the rest of Europe. And uh, we are not going to solve climate change by banning all the classic vehicles from the roads, because what you, you say is true. It's part of our motoring heritage, um, and we need to, to look after it, and we need to preserve it also for the next generations. Absolutely. Uh, do you think there's a voice that's being heard in Holland at the moment. Um, certainly here in the UK, we have some very key politicians coming out in support of the movement. We even have a all-parliamentary group for historic vehicles that sits within Westminster. Is there a similar mechanism in the Netherlands at the moment? Yes, there is actually, yes. And I'm glad there is. Um, of course, it's it's only a, a small part of the solution of all the uh, within the climate change discussions. But I'm very glad there is a political party here in Holland who uh, uh, acknowledges the fact that um, you we can't save the large problem with by banning all the, the classic vehicles. And we need to preserve that, that heritage. What's, pub something what's public opinion like then in Holland amongst people on the street? Uh, do they generally receive the cars well or, or have you just started to see the, the slight turning against historic vehicles? Is there, any, is there any attempt by the public to maybe show some negativity towards them? 
No, well, personally, I don't see that. Uh, I don't feel that negativity either because um, in case of car events, it attracts so many people and people are are, are uh, uh, smiling and waving and, and they are very interested in the cars. And, and, and I find even young people very interested in the in the mechanics of it, in the in the tech, uh, the technical part uh, of the classic vehicle. So I don't think uh, the majority of the people are against uh, the classic vehicles. I've always felt when you travel from the UK and you take a, a classic car abroad that you always do get a warmer welcome when you're abroad. I don't know whether it's British plates or whatever, but you seem to get a lot more warmth from European countries when you're traveling, especially in like the Alps regions and, mm -hmm. and around there. You know, in this country, if you have to sit in a long line of traffic in Switzerland or in Germany or in Austria in particular, they'll move, especially in Italy. Italy's the best for this. People will long swathes of traffic will just move to one side and wave you through because you're in an interesting car. It's interesting how different um, sort of opinions and, and the different reception that you get in different countries across Europe. And it's uh, if we can harness the best of that for the future, I think that's got to be a secret to success. Yes, yes, I think so too. But uh, well, there will there will always be haters, but there are always people who hate everything or who are uh, negative about everything. But on the other hand, if uh, uh, Jeff Bezos and Sir uh, Branson can, uh, can 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 sell tickets for uh, space tourism, there must be a place for for our classic vehicles in this world. Yeah, absolutely. Whether we power them on original combustion fuel or whether e-fuels or some other solution comes forward i think that's the that's the target isn't it really to just preserve what we already have to continue to be able to use it and to not waste the resource that's wrapped up in those vehicles because ultimately it comes down to consumption really and reducing consumption that's what's going to get us out of the global mess on on carbon emissions doing that in such a way that we're not seen to be standing or arguing against progress in everyday cars i guess you know the the sort of daily transport mm -hmm. commuter cars if everyone wants to go electric that's fine let's just keep what we already have on the road and not waste it yes exactly that's that's uh, an Yes, that's very. You say that in a very good good manner. Yes, mm. that's uh, that's that's. A, it's very interesting where we are going with uh, uh, with our transportation uh, at the moment. But it's also very inter interesting where we where we came from. Mm. And it, that that's not only for classic vehicles, but also for the the steam trains. And um, well, and, and horse and carriages. Also, of course, the classic car scene itself has a lot of work to do in broadening our appeal because ultimately, the more we can educate people, the more people we have involved in it from different walks of life, the, the better we, uh, we stand a chance of surviving. And I guess you have a, a unique perspective on that because, like I've already said, it's, dif it's different to have a lady on talking about these matters on this podcast. <laughs> So how do we get more Mariskas involved in the classic car world? Where are the others and how do we get them involved? <laughs> oh, well, well, it, it's, it's, it's in, in, the, in, in the United Kingdom, the, the, the chair of the Lotus 7 Club is a woman. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And do Aston Martin Club until recently also. Do you do very well. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> but I think it's fair no, to but, say it needs but, to be more diverse, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And I know a few uh, few women who are also very passionate about classic uh, vehicles, but not everybody wants to come forward because, well, in, in Holland we have, well, like in the UK, many car clubs, but um, there are still so little women uh, within the boards and, and that's, that's such a pity. Because mm -hmm. we we women we we know our cars we we love them as well and we um we do not well maybe we are not working full time on the cars because that's when that's why we we need some men around and some specialists but it's something about well passion is not um, solely for men or for women we have that 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 in common so. Yes, so I, I would really like to say, please, ladies, step up and, and join us.
<laughs> Absolutely. We want to see more of you. And I guess the, the trap that club uh, car clubs often fall into is this assumption that the the wife, to, to give it that name, the wife isn't interested in cars and therefore must be catered for in a different way. Very, oh, exactly. Very, you yes. know, very, it's always like the, the bloke is the guy with the car club and what are we going to do for the wives? Because obviously they're not interested. And it's a bit of a problem, yes. isn't it? Because exactly. like you, there are women who are just as passionate as most blokes are. It, it doesn't really matter yes. about your gender. And we have been in so many events where there was some kind of side program for, for the wife, so to say. So then, then Ronald was doing all kind of, of car things and I had to uh, uh, do some, some uh, uh, arts and crafts, for instance. And I just thought, <laughs> I want to go to the cars as well. Or when we, we attended an event and, well, I drove Penelope because Ronald is not allowed. <laughs> then we got out of the car and people started to ask him questions and he only could say well ask her it's her car i don't know anything about this one <laughs> <laughs> well absolutely i mean you know if we're going to have activities for non-car loving partners then perhaps we ought to have beer runs and football on tv as well just in case those non-car loving partners happen to be men yes <laughs> <laughs> It's brilliant. You know, as you look at uh, the future for your area now of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club in Holland, what are your ambitions over the next couple of years? Where do you see it going? What sort of events have you got planned? What does the future look like? Well, we really want to make the, the, the Dutch region a very active region because uh, all the members uh, regularly travel to, to the United Kingdom. So at least what we can do is go together. We, we just join forces and start traveling to the summer festival, for instance, or get together and go to a track day in the UK, etc. And then what I just want to uh, uh, want to connect all the members to each other so we can ask some technical advice, etc. Just be a, a living and breathing community. And, and let's see where we uh, just to start with and just let's let's see where it uh, where it ends and of course i would love to make it a, a larger region because 35 members well it's uh, it's it's a bit small but it's it's all about the quality and and not really the quantity buying interesting cars is great we're all interested in cars and what they represent and the interest they hold but actually they become really exciting and a real part of our lives when they are a shared experience when they are a memory creator when they're part of the family and they in effect carve out our lifestyle and give us the friendships and the experiences that we enjoy for years to come and uh, i think that's what you and your fantastic work with the car club are going to bring to so many so i suspect that over the coming months and years, that 35 is going to grow very, very quickly because already you've got us sold, Mariska. We're already honorary <laughs> members of JEC Holland. It sounds like a great fun club, and I think it's a reflection of the great fun person that you are as well. So uh, it's been a fantastic privilege and honour to have you here on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Mariska, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Wayne. It was a pleasure to join you. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Tom's Jaguar Racing Diary. Sharing the knowledge, drama and innovation from behind the scenes at the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club Race Championship. It's Friday, the last day of preparations before Brands Hatch. So we're literally just finishing off most of the modifications that we talked about in last week's episode. So we've done the uh, the modification and added the gearbox all cooler to the car now. Um, we've also added a little bit to that since we last spoke and we've actually added also an all catch can. We just thought that if we had a slightly larger catch can, if it does still push a little bit of oil out of the box, we've just got a separate reservoir for that to go to. So that was a bit of a last minute thing that we just added in there with the cooler. We've changed all the fluids on the car and we finished off the final spanner check. So 
been keeping a close eye on the weather and um, it looks pretty interchangeable over the weekend so as always um, I'll be honest with you I think it could go either way currently it's pretty wet and windy here um, it looks like it's that all of all day today and possibly a couple of showers tomorrow so we've actually got quite an early qualifier at Brands um, we're qualifying at nine in the morning so we're actually going to head up to Brands after work we've just got to get the car loaded into a trailer um, and last thing really on the list to do today is the final geometry checks on the car as I said we did find a couple of small suspension items last week um, that we've decided to, to replace so we're just going to do a final geometry set all of the dampers are set in like a mid-range setting because I don't know whether it's going to be wet or dry for tomorrow but I've got a feeling looking at the weather report that, report, that we might get away with it being dry um, possibly for the morning but I don't know if we're going to have any showers overnight looking at the timetable we're one of the first cars out on track for qualifying so if it is going to be wet there's going to be no cars out there to dry it off before we do go out so i think qualifying will be interesting um, we're not racing to the afternoon and there is quite a few other races so i think that could go either way so um, I'll, I'll be honest with you I'm, I'm not really concerned if it is going to be dry or wet it's just as i've said in the past before it's just so frustrating when it's interchangeable trying to make a decision on what setup to go with we have got like a, a middle ground setup um, that we can use if it's sort of a drying track rather than full wet um, but we do make quite a lot of changes to the suspension for the wet just to uh, make it a little bit more compliant with the supercharged car um, has quite a lot of low down torque so it can be notorious uh, to drive in the wet but we've managed to to make the car work around those items in the wet because we've recently had quite a lot of time in the wet so we've made it a little bit easier for me to drive in the wet so so yeah it could really go any way on that aspect um we've obviously seen the final entries as well and it looks like unfortunately james ram's not out with the xjs this weekend um which is a bit of a shame um i'm not sure as to why that is but he's not out with his car but we've still got um colin and quite a few other guys that will give us a really good run for our money around around brands and like i said it's a circuit that i've not spent a huge amount of time time at um but to be honest with you i'm really looking forward to getting back out it's been another month since we were up at coombe um, and the car's in really good order so I'm pretty confident with the car just fingers crossed uh, we get out there and get a good qualifying as I said we're mixing the grid at brands again so um, we're racing with another class from the classic touring car so I think it's going to be quite busy in qualifying and being on the on the indie circuit it's quite short so I think it's going to be fairly awkward to get a lap time in but I'll keep you updated as we normally do over the weekend um, I'm going to crack on and get this car loaded up ready um, we'll make the final amendments to tyre pressures first thing in the morning before we go out and um, yeah I'll update after qualifying and uh, in next week's podcast we'll talk about the results and how we got on that's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JEC podcast via www.jecpodcast.com. And you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message, or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages. Don't forget, you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Today button on the top right-hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits, plus the fantastic, glossy, 130-page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JEC. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.